Hello, it's Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. We continue our episodes of the Renaissance, the English Renaissance under the Tudors. As the farthest kingdoms west of Italy at the start of the Renaissance, England, Ireland, and Scotland developed along a slightly delayed timeline in terms of higher education and religious reformation. Suffering under an oppressive and resource-depleting civil war for much of the 15th century, England and Ireland lacked stable leadership until 1485, when Henry Tudor defeated King Richard III in a battle that took the throne for himself and his direct descendants. Under 118 years of Tudor rule, England and Ireland found relative peace and prosperity, as did their close neighbor, Scotland. King Henry VII, first of his line, cleverly consolidated his power by marrying into his rival family and producing male heirs with full royal blood in their veins. He sent loyal nobles to the far corners of the kingdom to, to take care of local courts and justice and established stronger infrastructure in terms of roads and central taxation. By the time Henry's son inherited the kingdom, it had become richer and more powerful than ever before. Truly, the English Renaissance began and ended with the reign of the Tudor dynasty. King Henry VIII, who ascended to the throne just prior to his 18th birthday in 1509, took his father's legacy and endeavored to put his own mark on the kingdom. A prideful and nationalistic king, Henry VIII veered away from the diplomacy at which his father excelled and organized various continued military campaigns abroad. He wanted to claim France in the name of the English throne, driven by the behalf with a belief that it was his ancestral right. He also wanted to father as many sons of feet in which he faltered quite notably. In the 1530s, when he met an exciting and attractive young woman named Anne Bolin, Henry envisions a way of which he could finally have the large family he craved, as well as bring fresh fashion and culture to the court. Anne was a lady-in-waiting to Henry's own wife, Catherine of Argon, but her family and nature were at odds with the reigning queen, where, where Anne was a playful, youthful patron of the French arts, Catherine was a steadfast, faithful, and more introverted partner to Henry. Catherine was well loved by her people, but the couple's lack of sons frustrated the king to the point of divorce. England like the rest of Western Europe, was traditionally Roman Catholic and therefore unable to provide divorces for marriages that had been properly performed and consummated. As far as King Henry VIII was concerned, however, he was in charge of his own personal affairs. When the Catholic Pope refused to grant Henry the right to divorce Catherine of Aragon so that he could marry Anne Boleyn, and have more legitimate children. The king abandoned his lifelong Catholic faith 
and turned to the new religion that was sweeping Europe, Protestantism. Under the Protestant doctrine, King Henry VIII knew that he could divorce his wife, emerge from under the proverbial thumb of the Catholic Church, and become the unquestioned leader of the kingdom. It was an ideal solution to every problem he faced and with visions of legitimate princes and supreme power over the English church motivating him onward. Henry joined the European Reformations in 1533. It was an epic moment for England and the future of Great Britain. The forthcoming years were tumultuous, to say the least. Still, no sons were born to the king, and Henry shuffled wives constantly in an effort to produce more children and please his extravagant taste for women. Personal taste aside, Henry's Church of England pushed his kingdom headlong into the philosophical and religious discussions occurring throughout the rest of the continent. Finally, England was a contender worthy of the discourse of neighboring nations who had long debated the benefits and drawbacks of Lutheranism, the possibility of the unquestioned authority of the Catholic Church was self-serving, and the proponents of humanism that related to such religious reforms. The king's decisions had been heartily assisted by the advice of Thomas Craner, a doctor of divinity at Jesus College. It was the fervent belief of Cramer that the English king's actions should be judged by an esteemed panel of theologists Therefore, his case could be properly dealt with by the Pope. Though the Pope could never be swayed, Craner swayed on as an advisor to King Henry and had been a huge impact on how the new church was to be organized. Holding the title Archbishop of Canterbury from 1532 to 1534, the first step to decathodizing England was the dissolution of the monasteries. Over the course of about four years, Henry VIII saw in every Catholic institution within his realm was disbanded. The residents were removed, priests stripped of their power, incomes from the churches, priories, and other Catholic bodies was appropriated by the throne, and all items of value were sold. It was a convenient way for Henry to pay for his ongoing attempts to win power in France. It soon became apparent, however, that the king himself, raised as a devout Catholic, was unwilling to undertake the full transition of England from a Catholic nation to a Protestant kingdom. When Henry died in 1547, however, the Church of England became the domain of his nine-year-old son Edward VI and his stipulated Regency Council. Edward had been born and raised in the Church of England thanks to his father's reforms, and he was a true believer in the good of pure Puritanism. Even as a young king, Edward transformed England's church with spiritual fervor. Edward put a stop to mass ceremonies, made it legal for clerics to marry, and declared that England's priests would perform church services in English. At the side of his father's most enthusiastic Protestant reformer, Thomas Craner, the young king brought the Book of Common Prayer to his people, ending the tradition in which only priests may read from a holy book. Cranmer wrote down his own 39 articles of religion 
to exactly define just what the Church of England stood for and expected from its constituents. And this was added to the prayer book. One of the most revolutionary reforms of the Church of England under Edward VI and later his sister Elizabeth I was the common people could now read and discuss the Bible for themselves. Catholicism ruled that commoners were incapable of properly interpreting the Bible's laws on their own and that they must take the word of their priests, bishops, and religious leaders without question. In Reformation England, religious philosophy could truly be explored with the fear of the wrath of the Catholic Church. England became a haven for Europeans who were prosecuted by the Spanish Inquisition and the Holy Roman Empire. Under Mary I, who ruled for five years after the death of her 15-year-old brother Edward, England underwent a swift return to Catholicism. Mary's government harshly persecuted Protestants and burned them as heretics. All but Catholics fled the country or hid in the countryside until 1558, when Elizabeth Tudor took the crown. She reigned as a true Protestant queen for 44 years, largely restoring England's reputation in the rest of Europe as a haven of reform, change, and development. The political, religious, and economic stability Elizabeth offered her subjects finally allowed the kingdom to achieve its full Renaissance potential. Shakespeare, Lully, and the New Art England's so-called Golden Age, the peak of its own Renaissance, came during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. The last Tudor monarch to hold the throne, Elizabeth I, I ruled over a prosperous nation whose middle class was educated, trained in a variety of trades, and was largely creative. It was during her reign between 1558 and 1603 that the very first English theater was built and the profession of acting and screenwriting took hold of the nation. One of English history's most revered polywrites, playwrights, William Shakespeare performed for the Queen multiple times. Shakespeare was by no means the first English playwright, but was one of the most prolific and has come to exemplify the English Renaissance era. William Shakespeare relocated from Stratford-upon-Avon to London sometime in the 1580s or 1590s, finding work first as an actor and eventually as a scriptwriter. What made his profession so modern was the form of his art. Scriptwriting had been a very rare form of writing just a few decades beforehand. In the Middle Ages of England and continental Europe, theater wasn't altogether unheard of. Short, didactic plays with morals and religious purposes were performed, often as part of a traveling entertainment troupe show or a church skit used to teach biblical law. Unfortunately, due to the fact that most performers, scriptwriters, and audience members were illiterate during that period of history, very few scripts have survived. So, what changed during Elizabeth's reign that suddenly made the rate performance art bloom in popularity at home and abroad. There were two important changes in England between the Dark Ages and the Renaissance. The threat of death or torture from the crown 
for expressive literature and performance was no longer in place. And the improved quality of life in 16th century Elizabethan England made it possible for more people to spend excess coins on entertainment. No longer was it absolutely necessary to watch every word of a script so that it didn't have an ounce of moral ambiguity. And the industry could flourish under the patronage of the queen herself and a vast audience of wealthy and middle-class people alike. As Shakespeare discovered his love of writing and theater, he found within it a love of philosophizing about life itself, like his peers in the Italian and German states, France, and other Renaissance countries. William Shakespeare used his literacy and knowledge of, country, of, of history and gifts due to Tudor education standards to think about all modern implications of religion, politics, kinship, and love on the human heart and brain. Perhaps the reason Shakespeare's plays were and are so well loved is that they explored human nature so well. Unlike the theater shows from centuries before, Shakespeare's works didn't conform to a form in which the audience was expected to learn a session. They simply told a story for the sake of an emotional connection between the story and the audience. In his f famous play, Hamlet, Shakespeare's title character ponders how the knowledge of death and the simple idea of intangible punishments in an afterlife affect the will and behavior of an otherwise bold and daring person. But that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have, than fly to others that we know not of. Thus conscious does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied over the pale cast of thought and enterprises of great pith and moment. With this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the names of action. Personal ide ideologies and philosophies such as these could have brought serious consequences in the area of strict Catholicism. But under Elizabeth, there was legal space for the individual philosopher. It was not only an incredibly modern idea for playwrights and actors, but for audiences as well. Almost every aspect of European life at that point in history was in some way instructed by the church, be it Catholic or otherwise, and the freedom to sit or stand and simply watch a story unfold without taking it too seriously was a huge development in the life of the individual. While Shakespeare's work focused mostly on romance, comedy, and historical retellings, French theater followed upon its early medieval custom of showing mystery and morality plays to audiences. Although French scriptwriters had been able to grow their industry a century before England, they were tightly controlled in what they wrote and performed due to the close surveillance of the Catholic Church. Morality plays based on the teachings of the Church, therefore, were the simplest to pull off successfully, while more forward-thinking humanist scripts could endanger the entire company of a theater. Furthermore, French guilds controlled the content of plays, and where any such type of play, mystery, tragedy, 
satire, and farce, being the most popular, could be performed. While comedies ruled at court, the common people of France preferred to spend their francs on tragic plays. By the early 17th century, the guilds gave up control of the cities and multiple theater companies moved in. And in the second half of the century, French composers and writers have began to work together to create an entirely different sort of theater, that of the musical tragedy or opera. Like so many other cultural aspects of the Renaissance, opera came from Florence. Dauphine was the first to show of its type performed in Florence in 1597. It was written by Jacopo Peri in the Baroque musical style that so epitomizes much of the European Renaissance musical composition. Through nothing remains of this particular script or its musical comp composition, the, the, the records re remain from a performance of Urdolence, written by Jacopo Peri and Cassini, presented at the wedding of Henry IV of France and Marie de Medici. The jump from Florence to Paris was, therefore, entirely precedented when the new Queen of France took up president with King Henry in Paris. The innovative concept of opera went with her and her return. Small versions of the Italian shows were staged haphazardly over the next decades until, in the latter half of the 19th century, French opera truly found its footing. Throughout the 1670s and 1680s, musician Jean-Baptiste Loy worked extensively with writer Philippe Quinault to produce a catalog of French operas that featured popular actors of spoken stage plays. Like the early Florentine operas, Loli and Quinto's creation usually required actors to sing out all full sentences in a regular conversational way rather than conform their words to complex music and master the sort of voice work modern art audiences would recognize as operatic. To show their work to the public, Lully used a tennis court in Bel Air to use as an open-air theater. Soon the operas caught on and the duo moved from the tennis court to the royal court. Their work unequivocally formed the basis of modern French and European opera and ballet just as William Shakespeare's work paved the way for modern English stage plays, satire and comedy. These are the types of cultural changes typically of European Renaissance on the whole and still stand to represent the blossoming of artistic industries throughout the continent. Indeed, English theater, French ballet, and Italian opera served to unify each respective population during a time a political evolution giving birth to artists and patrons, something about which to feel proudly patriotic, much of the feeling that still exists today. Seers and Prophets Science never walked so closely with pseudoscience than it did during the Middle Ages in Europe. Educated people, mostly men, search earnestly for meaning in the patterns they found around them. Interpreting every solar eclipse, meteor shower, and arrangement of twigs in a precise way. 
Sometimes the church supported these methods of understanding nature. Other times it was quick to label would-be scientists as heretics. Since astronomy had become a fashionable and exciting pursuit, curious researchers looked most often to the stars for guidance. During this important period of scientific exploration, astronomy was not yet separate from astrology. Therefore, masters of mathematics and medicine who studied the stars and derived prolific meanings from them were still classed in the highest order with astronomers, like Galileo and Copernicus. The, the telescope was to the Renaissance much what the psychic medium was to Victorian England. The most powerful driving force behind the cult of science was astrology. And this was the belief of Plato, Aristotle, and other classic philosophers that the stars could be used to divine the future. The zodiac, part of ancient astrological practices of the Babylonians, and perhaps even the Egyptians, had a part to play in Renaissance stargazing and fortune-telling. As with anything remotely related to the ancient Greeks and Romans, European philosophers jumped on the idea of interpreting the actions of the planets with gusto. They were proud of their efforts, not only because they felt they were restoring their own culture, but because Islamic nations have been continuously making mathematical and scientific discoveries for many centuries by that time. Motivated by every little reference to the heavens during university lessons, polymaths, as early as the 13th century, made exciting observations of the sky. One of the first European masters of astronomy was the Italian mathematician Bonatti. Bonatti's most influential work, The Book of Astronomy, was written around 1277. He used midpoints, a very precise measurement of the location of certain astral bodies within the star chart, to make predictions. He used such calculations to predict that the court at Montefiore would succeed in its military campaign, but be wounded in doing so. It proved true, making the Count a lifetime, lifetime believer in astrology. And Bonatti's book became an important part of astronomical education for at least two centuries. His calculations were the inspiration for the most prominent astrologers of the Renaissance. By the 16th century, two such famous astrologers and fortune tellers were able to use their presumed scientific and spiritual knowledge to serve none other than the two most powerful European queens, Elizabeth Tudor of England and Catherine de Medici of France. Nostradamus served the French queen, while John Dee served the English. Both men faced criticism for their professions, but simultaneously cultivated the immense trust of their employers. Dee's start with the royal family was tenuous, but he was arrested just a few years before Elizabeth took the English throne for having cast her sister Mary's horoscopes. Mary was the reigning queen at the time, and it was illegal to cast horoscopes on any member of the royal family. As unsure of the Catholic Church was about how precise any methods of astrology truly were, they were horrified at the idea that one could foretell the death of a monarch. The very suggestion that such futures could be revealed questioned 
the fabric upon which monarchies and inheritances were based. Dee found himself in serious trouble when his horoscope calculations landed him with a charge of treason, but he was freed and kept under close scrutiny by church officials. All the same, when Elizabeth replaced her deceased sister in 1558, she sought out the same very man who criticized of endangering her life with the prophecy. Though at the time, Dee's most marketable skill was that of navigation. Elizabeth was very much drawn to this knowledge of the occult. She was consulted with him for the first aid of her coronation. Dutifully, John Dee checked out his star charts and looked for the best date, one that forecasted luck and fortune. He chose January 15, 1559. Elizabeth happily followed his advice and afterward consulted the man any time she felt anxious about an upcoming date or event. Dee is rumored to have cast a spell on the Spanish Armada, who didn't once successfully breach England's coastline. The alchemy and numerology, two Renaissance sciences that occupied John Dee for, for the most, are not considered sciences in a modern context. Dee did a great deal of mathematical work in both studies. In an age where numerology was perfectly well accepted as a scientific pursuit, Dee's contemporaries considered him a top mathematician and a great mind. Dee fell out of favor with Elizabeth's successor, James VI of Scotland, and spent his senior years trying to communicate with spirits and learn the secret language of the universe. Dee was buried at Mort Lake, where he lived outside of London, but his grave has become lost to the world. Some of his mathematical books are on display at the Royal College of Physicians in London. As John Dee advised Queen Elizabeth I of England, Catherine de' Medici found her own solace in the nearly constant presence of her own seer, the French physician Michael de Nostradam, more commonly known as Nostradamus today. Through his family was originally Jewish, they converted to Catholicism under the strict pressure from the church, and Nostradamus found himself an eager student of various spiritual and physical studies. He entered the University of Avignon for medical studies at the age of 14, and later attended the University of Montpellier in hopes of earning his doctorate. The latter school expelled him when it was discovered that he was working as an apothecary. Working at trade was a considered far below the class of person who should attend a university, perhaps because professors wanted their students to be able to commit every ounce of energy to their studies. From the view of the late Middle Ages, wealthy class, middle and lower class people with hands-on jobs were not only potentially poor students, but possibly even gen genetically unfit to learn the higher humanities. He continued with his education via books and interviews with professionals, working hard to make a name for himself. When the plague swept through France in the 1530s, claiming the lives of Nostradamus' wife and children, he decided himself, working alongside physicians to try to heal the sick and eradicate the disease from Europe altogether. His popular rose pill was developed as a prevention for the continent's biggest infectious killer, and his cure rate was among the highest of his profession. Derived from rose hips, the pill's contents supplied patients with high levels of vitamin C, 
vitamin supplements, plus Nostradamus' belief in fresh air and hygiene for the sick and healthy alike, could indeed have had a positive statistical effect on the bacterial infection that was the plague. Nostradamus' almanac, written for the year 1550, gained him widespread fame and respect as a natural philosopher and seer by his peers and royal patrons, most significantly the Queen of France, Catherine de Medici, born of Florence's notorious ruling family, had a reputation as a conjurer. With the Queen's support, Nostradamus wrote his most famous book, Les Prophecies. In 1555, the pages contain multiple predictions based on his meditations over a bowl of water and a dark mirror. He told patrons that such meditations sent him into a trance and was characterized by strong visual hallucinations of future events. He documented these visions and interpreted them as specific events that would transpire over the course of the next 2,000 years. Of course, the Inquisition was a dangerous and omnipresent threat, even outside of Spain, having already come to the attention of the Church by way of his predictions and calculations. Nostradamus decided to write Les Prophets, in a coded form whereby predictions were broken into four-line poems that used multiple languages. It was not the enormous success he perhaps hoped it would be, but nevertheless the book was popular enough to sustain the seer and keep the book in print until modern times. Enduring through the centuries, Notre Dame's book has been interpreted to have predicted the French Revolution, the terrorist attacks on the United States of America on September 11th of 2001, the bombing of Hiroshima, Japan, the death of Princess, Princess Diana, the NASA Challenger disaster, and much more. Nostradamus and his patroness believed wholeheartedly in his prophetic visions, while modern science, a, a profession in which the seer considered himself to practice, refers to his full fulfilled prophecies, as post-diction. Post-diction describes the method of matching so-called prophetic writing and proclamation to significant events once the events had already taken place. Indeed, the physician and writer did not call himself a prophet, writing the following about the label. If I have eschewed the word prophet, I do not wish to attribute to myself such lofty title at the present time. For whoever is called a prophet now was once called a seer. Since a prophet, my son, is properly speaking, one who sees distant things through a natural knowledge of all creatures. And it can happen that the prophet, bringing about the perfect light of prophecy, may make manifest things both human and divine because this cannot be done otherwise, given that the effects of predicting the future extend far off into time. Perfect knowledge of such things cannot be acquired without divine inspiration, given that all prophetic inspiration derives its initial origin from God Almighty, then from chance and nature, since all these portents are produced impartially, prophecy comes to pass partly as predicted. For understanding created by the intellect cannot be acquired by means of the occult, only by the aid of the zodiac, 
bringing forth that small flame by whose light part of the, of the future may be discerned. We need God to prosper. Those without him will not. At court, Michael de Nostradamus found a permanent place as a physician to the royal family. When pressured to provide specific predictions as related to the royals, he said that King Henry, it would be, I would die from a wound in his eye. In 1559, while jousting at the celebration of his daughter's marriage to King Philip II of Spain, Henry was struck in the eye by his opponent's lance. The king died 10 days later. Nostradamus died in 1566. One day after writing his will and advising his servant that he would not be alive to see the sunrise. His reputation remains that of one of the perimeter fortune tellers of the Renaissance of all time.